Welcome to the Special Ed Files. I'm Jennifer Laviano, a special education attorney. And I'm Julie Swanson, a special education advocate. Case by case, we expose what really goes on in special education. Each episode, we open up a case based on real life experiences. We reveal where things went wrong and explain the legal implication. Finally, we solve the problem so you don't have to. Let's open up a file. All names in this podcast have been changed to protect the individual's identities. Let's open the file on Devora and the demotion. Oh, uh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Julie, let's hear the facts. You know, we're, we're preparing our listeners just by our, our size. You know, Jen, there are so many cases that really get to me, but this yeah. one in particular um, just... Uh, okay. Okay. All right. So let me talk about the facts. So Mm -hmm. Devorah is an 18 year old, well, at the time was an 18 year old girl who has a syndrome called Williams syndrome Mm -hmm. without getting overly into all the intricacies of Williams syndrome. Um, Many students um, who are children or people who have Williams syndrome can have borderline IQs, intellectual quotients, or they can have IQs that are, um, you know, they're not considered intellectually disabled. And in Devorah's case, she was not. She had a, um, you know, moderate level IQ. Um, Devorah was highly social, very aware of absolutely everything. Um, and she had been mainstreamed for her entire educational career, even traveling on the regular education school bus. Okay. Mm-hmm. And uh, Devorah was um, obviously at 18 years old when she's a senior. Um, when you are a student who has a disability, and we'll get into this more when we get into the law, um, but you are entitled to be considered for transition programming, which, like I said, when we get into the law, we will get more into. And Devorah was quite aware of the fact that um, she and her parents had decided that it would be a very good idea for Devorah to continue her education um, until she could be um, exited at, at, in in this case in Connecticut at the time, it was 21 years old and check with your own state on um, how far um, uh, transition services go until. Um, And uh, Devorah had had her mindset that she wanted to go to the local community college that had a transition program. And this is something that's happening more and more throughout the United States Mm -hmm. to meet the needs of students with a wide variety of of disabilities, where you can have a transition program that is held on a college campus, but you're still, um, so you're with your typically developing peers and kids your age, and yet you continue to work on your IEP. And in transition programming, that would include um, movement toward employment goals and objectives, um, um, post-secondary education, whether or not you want to go to, you know, beauty school, how to do hair, uh, be a chef or, or go on to, you know, Harvard. Okay. Um, and also, um, employment. Okay. A movement toward employment. Did I say right. all three of them? Oh, I'm sorry. And, and I'm sorry. The third one is independent living, the ability mm-hmm. to take care of yourself, uh, become a taxpayer, as you like to say, Jen, and, and be able to, um, independently live. 
Right. Okay. So, you know, the parents had discussed this um, with um, the school team as well, as well as divorce saying, boy, I really think that based on my needs and, and my IEP goals, this would be really something that I would, uh, I would like to attend this program. And they had mentioned this in all the upcoming IEP team meetings, individualized education program team meetings, um, you know, starting probably a couple of years um, before Devorah was 18 years old. Okay. So um, the, the, the parents started to realize that the school team probably wasn't too keen on that idea. Yeah. It started to sense they might say no. So that's when they brought me in, right? So we went to the IEPT meeting where we officially um, requested the um, to go to the program at the um, local community college, the transition program. And Devora was also at that meeting. And when you are transition age and even starting younger, um, it is um, sometimes most appropriate for students to be involved in their own IEPT meetings. In fact, highly encouraged if that remains appropriate for that student. Mm-hmm. And Devora herself asked the team, I would like to go to this program. Um, unfortunately, Jen, um, the district denied the request and offered up their district transition program. And here's the kicker, okay? Um, Their particular district program was housed in the um, preschool wing of the grade school where, in fact, Devorah went to grade school. Thus, de- the 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 demotion in this is about Devora and the demotion. Well, Devora was so upset she did not want to have to go back to the school where she went to grade school, and in the preschool wing where the transition program was housed, was very very upset by that. And oh, by the way, because they couldn't put Devora on the regular education bus with the students who were in grade school, they were going to transport Devora on the special education bus, right? Mm-hmm. That she had never had to go on, right? Devora wanted to be with typically developing peers. She thrived on that. And the idea, as you can well imagine, was very upsetting to have to go back to the place where she went to grade school to right. work on her adult transition you know, goals and objectives. Right. Right. So here, here we have, you know, we talk about promoting students from grade to grade or from, you know, one school to another. Here we have a demotion. We have a student who's 18 years old, who's being asked to go back to her grade school, um, not to, you know, participate in the grade school curriculum or with, uh, with peers who are at that age. That's where the program was housed. And, I know because unfortunately, you know, I had to take over this case um, because you were not able to resolve it at the IEP team table, Um, you know, but this was housed in that that program in that building and the school kept reminding us of that repeatedly, you know, that's just where it's housed. It's just, you know, it's not like she's going back to preschool. That's not what's happening. But Devorah knew what the building was and she certainly felt, um, and and we're going to get when we get to the law uh, into why 
this was a demotion educationally, not just in terms of the the sense of going back to the old building. Um, but you know, she she knew that this was not um, a, a program that represented moving forward in her life, but in fact represented going backward in every way. Um, and so it was uh, most unfortunate that uh, what 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 transition to adulthood is envisioned to be was the opposite of what was being planned. Right, and you know, we will get to what ultimately ended up happening with Devorah's um, transition program when we get to the verdict. But before we go on to the law about this, Devorah absolutely refused to go to the program, Jen. She yeah. would not go. Now, her parents did coax her to go a couple of the days, you know, a couple of days um, here and there. Um, you know, it was very difficult. And unfortunately, in this case, Jen, um, you know, the parents could not afford to place Devorah privately at their own expense at this program. This is um, a harsh reality for, for many folks, right? And so, you know, they had to try to first... Um, you know, resolve this matter um, in a way that perhaps the conclusion would be, well, since if she's refusing to go, we we somehow we've got to make another decision. Um, but you know, it was weeks and weeks and weeks, and Devorah just absolutely refused to go. Yeah. Um, so, and that's when you referred them to me, and um, that that's a good time as any to talk about the law. So let's do um, it. Let's do it. So transition programming, let's start with that, okay? Mm-hmm. So when we say transition programming in this context, I, I tell parents I'm talking transition with a capital T, not transition with a lowercase t, meaning we're not talking about transitioning within a building or transitioning um, you know, from middle to high school or elementary middle school. This is transition to adulthood. And the f- federal law that governs special education, which is the Individuals Disabilities with Disabilities Education Act, IDEA, um, specifically requires that for all students who have IEPs, individualized education programs, that by the IEP that's in place when they turn 16, the school district is required to address transition programming. And Julie's already told you the areas that are we focus on, including post-secondary education, which um, was added in the 2004 IDEA, um, and employment, uh, living skills, uh, you know, vocational, there's a number of domains that um, are required to be addressed through transition programming. In your state, that programming may begin at an earlier age, but certainly by federal law, by your 16th birthday, your school district is supposed to be assessing your transition needs, as well as addressing them through goals and services. Um, And so, for some students, um, they are entitled to those services just to prepare them for college or, or to go on after their typical senior year to a job or some other um, living situation. But for many students, um, they may require services beyond the traditional senior year, their traditional 12th grade year of high school. And when that happens, um, students are still legally entitled to walk with their class, so to speak, for graduation ceremonies, et cetera, but not receive their high school diploma and go on and get transition services. It may be for another year. It may be for another two years. It may be until your state determines that you, quote unquote, age out. Um, which at the time that this case was involved with 21 in Connecticut is now 22. Um, and so, you know, it may be that you require some bridging services. It's based on your unique needs, just like every other aspect of the IDA focuses on the unique needs of the child. And for Devorah, who had Williams syndrome, her parents had fought really hard because she is so socially motivated, her whole education to have her included. 
Um, and that's um, when we say included, we mean included in the mainstream of her public school, which leads to another part of the law that I'm going to cover here in a minute um, called the least restrictive environment provision. We talk about that frequently on um, our podcast, which is the portion of the special ed law that says the students with disabilities shall be educated to the maximum extent appropriate with their non-disabled peers. And throughout her education, her parents had fought pretty hard to keep her in those inclusive environments against some resistance on occasion. You know, as she moved to middle school, the team was looking to move her into more um, you know, pullouts and having her education received in the main, in the uh, resource room as opposed to in the mainstream classes. That happened again when she went to high school. There was an effort to move her into like an adaptive PE class, which is a small class um, for physical education with all students who have disabilities and um, special instruction as opposed to just the mainstream gym class. Um, and they resisted it every step of the way successfully on their own without needing either Julie or me involved. And the result is that Devorah had a really wonderful, successful inclusion experience throughout her education with her parents advocating for it. And she had many friends Mm -hmm. um, many friends with disabilities and many friends who did not have disabilities. She, you know, attended uh, non-academic um, events, you know, the prom, all those things. She she was very much a fabric of the community of her, her high school. And um, so when it came time for this dispute that arose when Julie um, went to the IEP meeting and then referred them to me, you know, they said to me, you know, her whole education, we fought so hard for her to be included as is her right. Why should her transition program, which is supposed to prepare her for adulthood, be in this not only inappropriate physical location, but the program itself was with all students who had pretty significant disabilities. Mm -hmm. There were no students in that program mm -hmm. who, um, who were, quote unquote, non-disabled peers. I, I take that phrase from the statute. Mm -hmm. and, um, and she, you know, felt rightly so. She and her parents felt it was a step backwards from the very successful inclusive education she'd had throughout. Um, and so, you know, it, it's an interesting thing because when I, you know, they call it the practice of law for a reason, which means you are always practicing it, right? <laughs> um, when I went back and I thought about this case, because there's not, we don't have a lot of litigation about transition programs um, for one really practical reason, which is that most of the time, um, by the time you're dealing with an 18-year-old, 19-year-old, 20-year-old, both the parents and the school district don't want to go to the expense of a legal dispute. And so they usually resolve them even when they arise. And so we don't have a lot of case law, you know, that comes down on these cases. So I was thinking to myself, you know, I have to go back to the statute and reread it and read the transition sections. And nothing in there suggested to me that the obligation to honor the least restrictive environment provision um, doesn't apply to transition programming. Right. And in fact, if you if you sort of talk out a little bit more about what the LRE is, and it says, you know, that you should be educated with your um, non-disabled peers to the maximum extent, you know, possible, um, appropriate, actually, um, it goes on to further say that the special classes, the separate schooling, or other removal of children with disabilities from the regular education environment occurs only if the nature and severity of the disability is such that education in regular classes with the use of supplementary aids and services cannot be achieved satisfactorily. Right. So Devorah had the ability to, with, um, you know, supports, very much thrive 
um, without being in such a restrictive environment, meaning with just all um, not, uh, disabled peers, which there's nothing wrong with being with your disabled peers. No, but in Devorah's not. case, it would not have constituted her least restrictive an environment. So, That's you know, right. of course, Jen, one of the things I got on the record before we I handed it over to you was, you know, we didn't believe this was her least restrictive environment. Um, it was, you know, uh, unfortunately, unfortunate that the team did not even consider Devorah's input and requests, right? Um, and yeah, so it, it, it was just one of those cases that I thought this defies logic for me. And and, and here's another part of the law yeah. that I think it, it violates discrimination, yeah. right? That um, that if you're looking at a typically developing student, right, mm-hmm. and they get to um, graduate and and move on to college or whatever it is that they're doing in their lives, right, they they get to go to that next step. Why should a person who has a disability go back to where they they had grade school to be educated? I mean, on so many levels, it it just feels so discriminatory, right? It it's does. not allowing that person the to dignity move to move on to the next higher step of their life. Julie, you know, for years we had in Connecticut, as you well remember, for many, many years, when school districts finally started putting together transition programming, because you know, there's a lot of urban legends surrounding all special education law, but transition in particular, one of which is we only have to provide transition services for our most impaired students. That's not true. We have to provide transition students services to all students who have IEPs. Another um, that's, that was out there for a while when they started putting together these programs is that it's perfectly appropriate to just have a student stay at their high school for another few years, you know, and, and right many of these transition programs for years were housed at the high school. And so mm-hmm. the student never left the building, even though they you know, participated in the graduation, they saw all their friends leave. And now all the kids who are juniors are now seniors, sophomores are now juniors, and they're all seeing that this kid's still there. And it was, you know, a very discriminatory practice as well as um, not really honoring the dignity of the student um, to move on to the next point, point portion of their life. And I remember in one IEP meeting when this was being recommended for the student. And I said, well, you know, we've, we really consider that inappropriate for a number of reasons. You know, she's graduating, she's finishing, you know, this, this school, she should be able to move on to a different program in a different building. Oh, well, we'll have, you know, a separate entrance for her. So she doesn't have to be, you know, well, how much more segregated are we going to get here? You know, oh, it'll be a different part of the building. She won't see any of the, the other kids. And, you know, they give these, these sort of band-aids on a, you know, gaping wound of a, an appropriate program. And, you know, what I said to, to one administrator who was really pushing back on how inappropriate it was to ask this kid to just stay at our high school for another few years, I said, would you want to stay at your high school for three more years after you graduated? Come on. You know, I mean, it's just, it's it's one of those things that we sometimes forget the basics of the, the anti-discrimination provisions of these statutes that, you know, we want to treat people equally and based on what they require. And, and so, you know, to that end, I want to point out, you know, I can imagine some listeners saying, well, students who do not have disabilities don't have their, you know, colleges paid for by their school district. That's, you know, on the family to, to handle. And I want to be very clear about, A, what was being requested here and B, the law on it. Okay. Yeah. So what this program that the divorce family wanted for her was, was not for her to just go to community college and have right. her school district fund it. It was a specific program that Julie alluded to earlier, our 
propping up all over the country, and I think that's a great thing, on college campuses that's a supported program for students who require um, services and accommodations because they have disabilities. And so while um, Devorah would eventually be attending some of the classes at the community college, for which her parents and she would be paying for the actual credit-bearing college courses, it was the bridging of getting her to a place where she could do so as independently as possible and the services and supports that were going to be provided through this program that they were seeking be her IEP program. Okay. Right. So I want to be very clear on this because it gets really confusing when you talk about transition years as to whether or not we're talking about a college program or not. And right. believe me, Julie and I get tons of pushback from school board attorneys whenever a program is you know, on a college campus because they make the assumption that, oh, you're looking for us to pay for college. Not that no. there's any prohibition right. in the statute against that, right. but it's not really what we're talking about. We're talking about individualized transition programs that will assist students to transition to post-secondary education as the law requires they right. be entitled to, right. to have. And when, you know, typically when students go to these programs that are housed on a community college campus, um, they are not fully matriculated into a typical freshman year. They're working on their IEP goals and objectives in employment, post-secondary education, and independent living. And and yeah. and so that's that's really a big difference. And before we go on to the rewind gen and we talk about gee, what could have done, what could have been done differently to mm -hmm. um, avoid what you know, we will eventually tell you what, what happened uh, with Devorah, um, is, you know, I wanted to say that when you go and you, um, you don't take your diploma, as you talked about, Jen, mm -hmm. I just want to make sure that we've said for folks who may not be familiar with the, the transition process, is that doesn't, you can still participate in the graduation ceremonies. You just cannot get the official diploma. And in most cases, um, the diploma looks just like everyone else's. You know, they usually come in that foldable open, you know, like you open it like a book. Mm -hmm. um, but it might say something inside like certificate of attendance. No one else is going to know that right. Devorah wasn't getting her diploma. Um, but the law is very clear that if you receive that gosh, that gosh darn thing, all bets are off. So I just the, wanted the to make sure. Diploma. Yes. Yeah. And, and to, I'm glad you brought it up, Julie, because it does bring up another legal point that I want to make sure that everyone is aware of because transition disputes do arise. Whether they get litigated or not is different, but they do arise. Um, many times a school district will say this child has, or the student has um, enough credits to get their diploma and we think that they should. And a parent may say, well, he or she may have enough credits, or the student may say this too, he or, I might have enough credits to graduate, but I'm not ready. I haven't met my transition goals. I'm not ready for right. my next step yet. And um, when such a disagreement arises, we um, caution families to know, um, to try to find out the answer to that question sooner rather than later in the school year of the tradition, traditional senior year, because you as a parent and your child as a student, if they're over 18, have a right under the procedural protections of the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act to actually refuse that diploma. And um, the school district should not issue the diploma if you file 
for due process hearing and invoke your stay put rights. Um, stay put is a very complicated procedural <clears throat> safeguard under the IDEA, but it is also a very strong one. And it, it, it there are um, both guidance from the federal government as well as cases that say that when a parent and a student disagree with the issuance of a diploma, um, graduation would be a change in the child's placement for purposes of that procedural safeguard. And therefore, if a parent disagrees or the student disagrees or both um, with the issuance of the diploma, they can invoke their stay put rights. You do have to file for hearing in almost every state in order to invoke those rights. That's why I say, please, if you think this is your, your, your student's case is heading in the direction of a disagreement about the issuance of a diploma, act on it sooner. I hate getting phone calls in July or at the very end of June, um, the day before the graduation from a family saying, they're about to issue a diploma and it doesn't give me any time to file for a hearing um, and invoke their stay put rights if, if the toothpaste is already out of the tube and they've already given the diploma, it makes it much, much harder to enforce the remedies that are available under the law. So if you have a disagreement or you're sensing you're going to have a disagreement about the um, issuance of the diploma, you want to put that on the record at the IEP meeting, even call one early in the school year to ask whether the team believes that the student is on track to receiving their diploma. So you can formally say, I disagree. And then if necessary, have time to take formal action to halt the issuance of the diploma. Right. And just to be crystal clear about that, Jen, and what stay put is, is it essentially means, you know, this child isn't going to be exited from special education. He or she gets to stay in this program until the adults are able to work out, you know, the, 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 the disagreement. Right. And, you know, yeah, it's, it's maintaining the status quo is right. what it's supposed to do. Yeah. Right. And, you know, and the unfortunate thing about this, Jen, is that when you invoke stay put, it requires the parent to be the party to bring a hearing. And, you know, not all parents can afford that. No, and, I know. Um, and that's in most states. There are some states, and this is probably getting more complex than oh our dear. you know, but there are some states and enough of them, and it's worth mentioning, um, where actually it's the opposite, where if the school wants to change the placement, they have to file for a hearing. Yeah. Um, but in most states, right. it's the parent who has to take action. And, and in right. any event, you don't want to, you don't want to risk it. You know, right. you want to make right. sure you've done it right. 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 I, I forgot about that. I apologize. No, All right. Fine. Let's get into the rewind. <laughs> um, you know, I, I want to start by saying that, and this is more of a, um, a message, I suppose, to, you know, folks who work at schools is really listen to the the logic, perhaps, that a parent, and in this case, the student had, advocating for their, for themselves, that this is what I, I would really like. Now, that doesn't mean just because you want something, you get it, right? Sure. But in this case, the, the parents and Devorah had really laid out all of the reasons why they thought this would be appropriate, you know, and I just don't, I, I, I just think that's worth mentioning. It's you know, very important to mention that, Julie, because, you know, and I, I pointed this out in this case and many others where the student feels strongly 
um, that they want or don't want a particular program. And as you said, just because you want it doesn't mean you get it. I, I'd like to be tall and skinny. It hasn't happened yet. And I'm 50, <laughs> so I don't see it happening anytime soon. Um, that said, you know, the student's input is really important mm. because, you know, we've been teaching these kids, usually as part of their RIP for years, self-advocacy skills and um, independence. And, you know, then we, at the end of their education, we discount what they, their input is. That's hardly in keeping with what um, right. either logic or the law mandate. Right. I'll just take the, I'd like to be thin part. Okay. Um, Fair enough. All right. So, you know, the other thing too is, and, and there's sort of two points. This is sort of a two-pronged thing I'm going to say here. First of all, I think it's really important for people to remember special education is not a place. It is a set of services. And in fact, the IDEA, the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, is very crystal clear about how we're we're supposed to go about determining where what place is the education ultimately delivered? And the very first thing that you're supposed to do is to determine the child's present levels of academic achievement and their functional performance, socially, behaviorally, emotionally. Um, and, and that may mean that you have to do further evaluation. You could sometimes obviously determine the present levels of academic achievement and functional performance without evaluating, but sometimes it may mean that you have to do further evaluation. And then and only then do you then develop the IEP goals on the child's, um, you know, concerns, the areas of concerns about their present levels of, of, of functioning, right? And, and how the, those deficits, those concerns are going to adversely impact their education. Now, once you've done that part, the team is then supposed to say, okay, now we have all these great IEP goals and objectives we hopefully have all agreed upon. Where can we deliver these IEP goals and objectives? And I think it's so important to recommend that because, or to, to remind folks of that, because you've got to sort of step your way through that process because if the team had done that, there may have been it may have been very obvious that the best place or the most appropriate place, I should say, to deliver Devorah's IEP goals and objectives would not have been in the preschool wing of the basement of the school where she went to grade school. An entirely restrictive program. And, and right. you know, Julie, that, that point bears repeating and, and um, expansion. And, and this is why many districts reflexively. And I don't, I'm, I'm saying that because I don't want it to be interpreted as I think this is being done maliciously, but reflexively teams recommend programs they have versus doing mm -hmm. what the IDEA requires, which is designing programs to meet the unique needs of the student. Mm -hmm. Okay. If that had been the primary focus, let's design an IEP, an individualized education mm -hmm. program, the I and the IEP for Devora, rather than goals that talked about how she would access the community in the way that the program that they have does for the students that attend the program now, mm -hmm. they would have talked about Devorah's need to um, practice some of her um, executive functioning skills so she could eventually be taking these courses in college on her own, right? They would be talking about her unique needs. And so when, when you are in an IEP meeting and it's clear that the program being proposed is, is, you know, you can tell, I mean, you and I can tell, 
early on the meeting, even with the development of the goals, that they're heading heading in a particular direction and they're customizing this document, not for the child, but for the program they're going to put on the table. Mm -hmm. And it's because it's the one they have. And there's nothing inherently wrong with that program, that transition program that that district put together for some students. It's just not appropriate for Devorah. Right. And um, and that's why, you know, the the case um, became a disagreement because it didn't meet her unique needs. And um, and so that that's so important that we always focus on the process being let's look at the unique needs of the child and design an individualized program, not find our program and try to say say why it's appropriate for the individual. And I can understand why school districts will say, hey, let's look at, you know, our program first, right? And and it also, you know, there's another part of the law, Jen, and that is that the parents' right to explore the continuum on that least restrictive environment continuum, that it shouldn't, shouldn't be that here's your one and only option. Right. Yeah, and that's something that could have been done differently as well as to right. the whole team looked at what's available out there um, for transition programs, as opposed to, you know, just saying this is what right. the answer is going to be. Right. right. So yep. here, here are a couple of other things that um, I think, you know, could have been done as we go through the re- rewind. And oh, by the way, anyone listening and your child is, uh, you know, going into a transition program, you might want to check with your own state as to how your state defines transition programs, right? It it may have some very explicit um, guidelines of what constitutes a transition program. And it may be that, you know, it it, it doesn't meet the, the, the definition of being in the basement of a you know, on the preschool wing of a, of a, of a, of a, of a grade school. Mm-hmm. So th- that's just something I want to throw out there. You know, I would say to districts, don't put your transition programs in a school, especially a lower grade school. Um, I know the trend here in Connecticut, not all of them yet, but the trend is really to find um, a location that is not housed in one of the existing schools. It might be that they rent a space, um, you know, at a, you know, a barn, uh, not a barn, a barn. Um, um, well, there is one district in Connecticut that actually has a very beautiful barn that yeah. their school, <laughs> the transition program is housed in. Um, but uh, anywhere, it just not on um, in a school that already exists. And this way you're, giving the students who are going to attend this program the opportunity to move on to something that isn't where they've already gone to school, mm-hmm. right? So, and and yeah. that may take some investment, right, on, sure. on school's part. But I think in the long run, right, you're, you're helping your district um, have a better shot at um, having parents be more amenable to considering your program. Well, and Julie, you know, to that point, because our our goal is always to give information and strategies to educators as well as to um, parents and and to students, you know, there are some districts that have gotten very wise to the fact that the 
um, the, the community colleges and many um, programs are sprouting up all over the country that are rather costly. And a few of them have been wise enough to put together really good transition programs mm-hmm. in their district and charge other school districts tuition mm-hmm. for them. Right. And that's smart. I mean, that's smart right. programming because not only are you you're creating programs for the students who reside in your district, but you're creating revenue for your district while also meeting the needs of students whose districts maybe don't have an individualized program that's appropriate to meet transition needs. Right. So, could and be you know, it's it should be applauded when districts, um, you know, go to the where where you're. Oh, what's the word I'm looking for? The phrase I'm looking for where you're um, you're building your own capacity, yeah. right? Yeah, to be competitive with what's out there. That's a yeah. wonderful thing. Yeah. So you know, I'll bet you're all wondering what happened to Devorah and Devorah's case, and so we're going to move on to the verdict to tell you what what what, what actually happened. Well, you know. Um, the 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 district's attorney um, was eventually made aware that the parents were going to go the route of um, you know working with an attorney and to um, you know put uh, go to due process over this matter, and rightly so, I think smartly so. I don't I don't think smartly is a word, but um, that that the 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 the. The district attorney, I'm sure, you know, said to the district, I'm not sure this is the case you want to fight Um, because I think the district attorney was able to convince uh, the district that um, this would not be the uh, Devorah's least restrictive environment. And and truly, Julie, you know, what happens in these situations when when you can talk lawyer to lawyer um, where you can say, tell me your authority for the position that the least restrictive environment requirement doesn't apply to transition programs. And they can't, they can't, there isn't authority on that. Then none that I'm aware of anyway. And so, um, so, you know, they make a judgment call and part of that judgment call is sometimes just to resolve it rather than going forward and spending money on lawyers, which, you know, isn't what we want to spend money on. We want to spend money on kids. Right. 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 And Devorah was ultimately placed at this community college transition program and had a very, very positive experience there. And so on that note, we will close up the file on Devorah and the demotion. Take care. Bye-bye. Until we open up our next file, this is Jen Laviano. And Julie Swanson. The Special Ed Files is a production of the Quinnipiac University Podcast Studio. Our executive producer is Dave DeRoche, Quinnipiac University Director of Community Programming. Our producer is Brian Murphy. File closed.